From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home, and I'm excited to share our upcoming issue. This winter, we're taking a deep dive into the future of retail, including how brands are innovating to stay ahead, what it takes to design a successful storefront, and what the trade can learn from today's retail landscape. Don't miss another issue. Subscribe today at businessofhome.com slash subscribe. That's businessofhome.com slash subscribe. And now, on with the show. Rumor has it there's a curse against the third-generation business owner, one fed by outdated systems and a lack of product innovation. But that doesn't hold true for George Matuk, who's grown the textile company launched by his grandfather in 1929 to an annual revenue of more than $35 million. Managing new retail channels and category extensions has proven just as challenging as enduring nearly a century of economic and political shifts. I sat down with George to learn how Matuk not only coped, but thrived through each. Company started back in 1929, is that right? That's right. My grandfather was an immigrant from Damascus, Syria. He left Damascus in 1919 after World War I, moved to Italy, where his brother was in um, the textile business, exporting handmade lace that was made in Italy and convents and places like that. Okay. And um, he spent 10 years there, and that became his business. And then he moved to the United States in 1929. And he started. Which was a great time to start a business. Perfect time to start a new business in New York. Like, his timing couldn't have been better. And uh, I figured, like, if he couldn't mess up the business in 1929, like, there's no way that I could mess it up. Yeah, the pressure's really on. A lot of pressure on me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he started his company here and he was importing the same handmade lace, uh, into the United States. It was a very carriage trade kind of situation, suitcases of samples and showing them and then writing an order and putting it in the mail and by steamship to Italy. And a year later or so, these things would show up and that's how Matuk started. Amazing. And that's pretty crazy. Yes. So who would he go and call on? Who would he bring his suitcases to? And what was his customer well, base? It's, I, I never knew my grandfather, so a lot of Sadly. this is legend. But there, And I don't really like to do celebrity-driven stories. But there is a story about um, Mrs. Edsel Ford in Detroit <laughs> okay. being one of his first customers. And so I take that as a fact. Sure. And like who's going to argue that? Who's going to argue that? I like to think of my grandfather in Detroit at the Ford mansion with a suitcase full of lace samples with his lace? and walking yes. out with an order and high-fiving himself. Absolutely. Fantastic. And was he a one-man band? Was it a, was it a, just him at the beginning? I, or I think so. Okay. I think at the time it was a one-man show. My grandmother, uh, who he um, married a little later than that, was actually also in the linen business in a different uh, kind of company as well. So, so my father's family was all about these linens growing up and he grew up in Brooklyn okay and uh, and and that's how the family tradition started in the United States and so by the 1960s what had the business become and it, at that time the business was more of a domestic manufacturing table linen company okay and so during World War two it became impossible to trade with Italy and my grandfather started a factory in New York City making table linens and rather than those intricate handmade products that were coming from Italy 
he was making more like the kind of table linens that maybe a lot of us grew up with around the dinner table, um, things that were nice but that you could throw in the washing machine mm -hmm. and dry okay. and not have to iron and that wash and wear type of table linen um, identity was a lot of what Matuk was in those days and I think that he was a pioneer in, in that world and, uh, and I think really importantly you know, in that generation of the company was when we became a manufacturer, which is really core to our identity to this day. So at that time, the manufacturing was actually here in New York. Yeah, I think it was at the one point it was in Newark, and at okay. one point it was in the garment district. Okay. And uh, uh, But yeah, it was around this area, absolutely. Okay. And when do you show up in the family business? Um, well, you know, I like to say that my first memory in the family business was in the 1970s when uh, I came home from school one day. I was probably like 10 years old and found, to my horror, satin sheets on my bed. That oh, my, my goodness. That was a Matuk, you know, hit product in the 1970s. I don't know if you know that, but... God, I did not um, know that. Yes, I'm, yes. Okay. It's, a, it's a source of a lot of anguish uh, for me. I remember... I'm sorry. ...not letting my friends into my bedroom. I didn't want them to see my satin sheets. Oh. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and the covers would be on the floor. I'd be shivering. Oh. And so I was traumatized, uh, you know, at that time uh, by the family business and, you know, never imagined myself... At that point, Actually, you said, I will never be involved in this business. I said, I'm going to flip baseball cards and do stuff that I want to do. Whatever I have to do. I'm never going to be in the family business. Yeah. But the, lo and behold, here I am. But we don't have satin sheets anymore. So you got rid of those in the line? We got rid of the satin sheets. Okay. It's true. Yeah. But uh, as my father would say, satin sheets sent me to college, so I should be, I should be kind. <laughs> so there was a time where satin sheets were all the rage. Satin sheets, you know, were all the rage, I guess, in the 1970s, and Matuk was at the forefront of that. Mm, okay. Uh, it was obviously like a different day. And you know, my father would say, they weren't just satin sheets, they were nylon satin sheets, so they were really oh, good. Yes. And uh, we had lots of colors, and there's still some funny advertisements sitting around our archives of How great. You know, people luxuriating in uh -huh. these yeah, chocolate right. brown satin sheets yeah. or whatever. And uh, yeah, you know that was part of that was part of who we are. And it's like it's funny to talk about, but what what was happening there was Matuk starting, I think, you know, under my father's direction to really develop an identity beyond uh, the table linen and mm. entertaining space. So uh, while my grandfather had done some bed linens, it, it wasn't really part of who we were. And I think that that was one of the key uh, legacies of my father, uh, you know, at that point in time was going outside of this, you know, table linen only history and, um, and finding a place to succeed in the bedroom and a little bit later in the bathroom as well. Right. Okay. And we're going we're gonna to get to that because sure. that's a big category for you yeah. as well. And so... People started living a little bit differently too, right? And that was part of what was affecting table linen sort of in general, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you fast forward a little bit to, you know, the 1990s, uh, we were still a majority table linen company, okay. but it was getting harder. And it was for yeah. a number of reasons. The primary one, which you alluded to, was that uh, families were eating in the kitchen mm. and not using table linens anymore. And if they were using table linens, they might buy one, you know, tablecloth a year right before the holidays or something. And so that business was really going away. And then right. what was left of it that was becoming really casual, uh, printed, you know, sort of like more lower quality kind of stuff, was, uh, was 
disrupted, if you will, by globalization. So mm. in the 1990s, we were selling printed table linens to uh, middle market companies. JCPenney, Bed Bath & Beyond were like our largest customers back then. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then all of a the sudden, they found that they could go to Hong Kong or Taiwan and buy the same thing. They were retailing these products for less than we could sell them at wholesale for. And, uh, and suddenly we found ourselves in kind of an existential dilemma uh, regarding what we were offering the market and what the market was interested in consuming. So that's, so we're talking sort of the mid to late 1990s? This would be in like the late 1990s, let's say like 1997, 1996, okay. something like okay. that. Yeah. So the, so the business was, was, was hard hit, if I recall. And yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, my father always ran a really solid business. It wasn't like we were in financial straits or anything, mm -hmm. but there was definitely no growth. And there was certainly the appearance or the possibility of contraction. I mean, when you're selling product that, uh, you know, is uncompetitive in the market, right. that's not really being used uh, in the homes like they were before, uh, you, you've got a problem. And I think that uh, that's a crossroads that a lot of multi-generation businesses run into. Uh, no matter how great you were at one point in time, the world's always changing around you. And, um, and I think this is why a lot of, there's a cliche about third generation businesses, you know, never making it or the third generation always messing it up. But, uh, you know, family owned businesses, even traditional ones in the textile industry like ours, uh, have to evolve too. And, you know, that was a point in time where we could have folded up tent or we really had to do some serious thinking about who we were and who we wanted to be in the future. So products moving over to Asia, lots of the textile industry is, is really in disarray at this time, yeah, right? Lots, a lot of American right. manufacturers leaving. The, the sewing factories are leaving. When the sewing factories leave, the fabric finishers mm -hmm. have nobody to sell fabric to. They go out of business. The weavers follow them. So the whole supply and chain. the whole supply chain falls apart. Right. Okay. Okay. And that's what was happening. And that's what was happening. Yeah. And, th and you were experiencing that in real oh, we time in, with the business. Absolutely. Like in 1997, our uh, fabrics were 100% 100 made in the USA. Hmm. And, and it's not an exaggeration to say that once a month, a supplier went out of business at that period of time. So uh, now today, uh, none of our fabrics are made domestically. Now, that's not something we're proud of necessarily, but, right, but in, in order to, to survive, yeah. uh, we had to seek um, this, you know, our supplies, our fabrics, or uh, you know, build our supply chain overseas. But over that same period of time, we've invested tremendously in our domestic manufacturing and created a lot of manufacturing jobs here. Right. So our manufacturing... Um, expertise, skill, flexibility, all of that over the last 20 years has grown enormously. But, you know, it's grown based on our ability to source fabrics overseas. Right. That, that's just a given. Yeah. So back to 1997-ish, uh, you and your father are having sort of a tough conversation, I guess, about what to do with the business and, and what direction to go in. I think that, you know, my father was always reluctant to invite me into the business for this reason. Okay. And he never pressured me. In the end, he was happy to have me in the business, but he was always very careful to say that he didn't know what the future was like and he didn't want me to make any mistakes based on his pressure, et cetera, et cetera. We always had a great open uh, relationship and, you know, uh, still do. But... Um, 
my dad ran the business from New York City, and mm -hmm. our manufacturing at that time was in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is a small historic town right. on the southeast coast of Massachusetts, known for whaling. Moby Dick was written there, and a long <laughs> tradition of uh, Portuguese immigration that fed into you know a textile industry. Mm -hmm. So in the 1980s, he had uh, closed his workroom in Manhattan and moved it to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and he had stayed here. And our workroom up there in New Bedford had really talented craftspeople with a lot of skill that could be utilized for the American market, but the, many, the factory itself wasn't organized in a way that was uh, leading to like a profitable forward thinking operation, if that makes sense. Okay. So okay. It, it looked like it was in an old dusty mill building and it, right. it looked like one of the factories that you would expect to go out of business. Okay. So, so, and his decision to stay here in New York and, and have someone else run it, was that sort of a, a, an indication of what he was thinking was going to happen with that, with that factory? I mean, was he... You know, I think that my dad was older at that time. My dad has never lived anywhere besides New York City his mm. whole life. So he wasn't going to move up to New Bedford, Massachusetts. I can or relate. It's very there. traumatic. When you and then, I know. I grew, up, I grew up here, too. Yeah. But uh, uh, I think that he didn't look at the manufacturing as uh, this kind of jewel right. in the Matuk crown or this seed that was waiting to be nurtured and grow into something magnificent. You know, he, I think he sort of thought of manufacturing as a necessary part of the operation. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it wasn't really like the core of what he was interested in probably as a business. Right. But, you know, okay. definitely to my dad's credit, uh, we had that manufacturing and, mm -hmm. and it, they were making really great product. And, uh, and, you know, we built the next generation of the Matuk story around it. So how did that story begin? What were, what were the decisions you had to make at that point? And, and where, did you, where did you start to make the changes? Well, the, the, key, the key decisions at that point were, number one, uh, we recognized that the bedroom and the bathroom, but the bedroom in particular, were much better places for us to profit in the future than the dining room. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, homes have multiple bedrooms, and and people were starting to get acquainted with this idea of cocooning, mm -hmm. and um, and our skills could be really easily translated from table linens to bed linens. And the really, you know, simple calculation I'll share it here that we discovered was that uh, even though we were in the textile business, the bed linen business was much different than what we think of as textile business, which is mostly apparel, in that uh, we're talking about very large pieces of high um, cost material mm -hmm. that typically don't take that much labor to turn into a finished product. So if you think about the size of a king size sheet, it's like mm -hmm. the size of a wall. And for the most part, it just has zip, 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 hem on three sides and something pretty on the top, and you've got yourself a king flat sheet. If you compare that to a shirt or a jacket or a pair of pants, you have a small piece of fabric that has a lot of labor that has to go into it to uh, convert it to finished product. And as we started to buy these fabrics overseas and, and focus on the luxury market, we realized, well, what's the point of manufacturing overseas? We buy these fabrics wherever they're made, we bring them to the U.S. 
and then we convert them in a super high quality, efficient, but relatively low labor intensive way. And we found all of a sudden that we were really competitive in that market. And, uh, and, and that's led to a long course of um, investment in our manufacturing, modernizing new equipment, new organization, new buildings, et cetera, et cetera, which brings us to where we are today. And I think the other key realization about that period was that we had a story to tell. Mm. You know, Matuk didn't have a brand really at that point. We were known in the trade as a special kind of company, but consumers didn't really know Matuk. If you look at any degree of packaging and labeling that we had there, almost every package that I find has something a little bit different and, you know, little index cards with handwritten tablecloth size. It was it was that kind of thing. So so building on that truly authentic, you know, history of our heritage um, to make uh, a luxury products brand was a real opportunity for us. And I think we've been able to uh, to capitalize on what my grandfather did and my father did after that in a way that uh, we never had before. So you decided, I mean, you consciously decided to become a luxury brand, right? And, right. and to become a luxury right. bedding right. and bath brand. That's exactly right. We decided to become a luxury bedding and bath brand, although we didn't really have a, a, an avenue into bath at that time. Okay. But, uh, but we were interested in the bath and, um, and we decided that we were going to build a luxury bed and bath linen company around uh, core manufacturing expertise that we were going to maintain in the United States. Okay. And that we were going to focus on the U.S. market and we were going to get to know that customer better than anyone and we were going to serve that customer better than anyone. And who was that customer? Who were you reaching out to to, to, to be your, your sort of source of information about what customers were looking for? Well, the truth is at that time it was really retailers. You know, I okay. think we were so early on in our thinking about marketing. It wasn't, we, weren't, we didn't know who the consumer was or what the profile was necessarily. But we knew who the retailers were mm-hmm. at that time that these customers were selling to. So our job in those days was to convince those retailers, you know, now we would call it the business-to-business relationships, to carry Matuk. Mm-hmm. And, and to do that, we had to prove that we not only had a product that would sell, but that we were going to provide a level of service uh, that nobody else did. And that didn't just include uh, delivering stuff on time, although that was part of it. It didn't mm-hmm. just include answering questions over the phone when they needed to be answered. It included this level of service that we got really, really good at which is providing custom solutions to retailers and interior designers who had no other way to do that and needed that to compete against some of the larger big box retailers like right. Bed Bath & Beyond that were emerging in those days. Okay. Okay. So a lot of the feedback that you got was people wanted customization. People, yeah. They people. wanted something different. They mm-hmm. wanted quality. They liked history. They wanted something that you could live with, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I think a lot of companies were and still do think about bed linens like they do fashion and they think they can make something beautiful uh, and put it on a bed and sell it. And that's just not the way that the home furnishings industry works. You know, right. anybody who buys sheets or a duvet cover typically already has 
wallpaper or a rug or an upholstered headboard mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and these products have to live within an environment that's already been defined and so I think a lot of manufacturers didn't really understand that and were just making products that they wanted to and not products that the customers really wanted to put on their beds in their homes. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that's what you identified as an opportunity. So at what point do we move the factory and, and sort of overhaul the, the production process for you? So uh, we were investing. We were in New Bedford. The f- company started growing. It was great. And, um, and then this really, you know, fortuitous thing happened uh, when um, the Pillowtex company, which owned the Fieldcrest, Royal Velvet, and Charisma brands, <laughs> liquidated right. like overnight and in those days and this would have been like 2002 2003 mm-hmm. there before there were matuk towels and abyss towels and other luxury towel brands there was royal velvet and charisma that's what everybody had sure and uh and for good reason they were good towels they were made in north carolina they were relatively inexpensive for what they were and the customers knew these brands but what happened was that they were owned by the Pillowtex company which liquidated, not just chapter 11, but chapter seven liquidation overnight, all of a sudden the market had no towels. And uh, it was, that was the opportunity that gave Matuk an entrance into the towel market. And we happened to be developing a relationship with a couple, a, one main supplier, but a couple others in Portugal. Okay. And, uh, and we were ready and a couple of retailers gave us a chance and, um, we got into the towel business, and uh, and it grew really quickly. And I don't mean just in revenue. Right. I mean in like the number of boxes and the volume of these towels. And we quickly like had no space whatsoever. And so that that you know real like explosion of our towel business back in two thousand three two thousand four led to us moving into a more industrial type of facility in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, in 2005. Okay, so the so the explosive growth in the towel business precipitates moving to manufacturing facilities that can handle this. Yeah, and manufacturing and distribution, and yeah. you know we needed better administrative space. And uh, as a manufacturer, as we started to learn more about it, we realized, well, like if we were in, you know, it's pretty on the outside to be in an old mill building, but if mm. you're in, you know, a, a building that was built for manufacturing, you could do a lot more, a lot better. Right. And a lot faster. Right. Were there some key partnerships at the, at the time that, that, that made the, the growth possible that became your, you know, the big companies that you, that you worked with? I mean, Well, the first company that really believed in us was Neiman Marcus okay. and Horchow okay. in those days. And, right. and there was a buyer there, Boo Powell, who, you know, anybody in my generation of luxury sure. linens would know. And um, Boo was the one who gave us a chance uh, to have that double page spread and all the Neiman Marcus and Horchow catalogs and there were a lot of them back then yeah uh, with our first towel and uh, and you know and and I always think of of you know Neiman Marcus and Horchow and boo really fondly because you know they they we they really took a risk on us and uh, and I'm really fortunate that somehow we were able to bootstrap it together and hang on to that business. But, you know, once we started selling towels and working with suppliers and learning more about it, we found a lot of other opportunity as well. So, So, and and at that point, so you you make very special towels. 
I'd like to think so. Yes. Yeah. And, and and so and I mean I'm I'm amazed at how many people remark on on that when I sort of say oh I'm going to be talking to George Matuk they're like oh well, I love their towels I mean so so at that time were your towels what they are t- today had you had you perfected whatever this formula is that you've that you've created or, or was this still before you had figured it all out? It was before we had figured it out. I mean, we started to, one of our first towel programs is, was called Cairo and it's still on the product line. And in that program, we actually buy the Terry by the meter and we import it uh, on the roll into the United States and we cut it and sew it. And we have hundreds of different colors of piping and we have mm-hmm. monogramming. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, you know, that was the first real Matuk towel program. It took a long time to kind of scale up, but uh, and that's still the core of a lot of what we do today is that Cairo towel program. Got it. Um, okay. The the programs that came a little bit later, uh, you know, are a little bit more um, solid color type of towels, fully manufactured overseas, and uh, you know, for us, the, the the magic in those is like the yarn selection, the construction. The colors, the mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. other detail, the weight, the 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 pile, the the softness, all of that stuff that goes into it, uh, you know, to make a towel special. And like ultimately, um, we have more great towels than we can sell at this point. So we never introduce a towel unless we feel like it's got something totally unique. And the way that we know that it's unique, and not just from our own sort of engineering of what makes a great towel, is we use them. Right. So we use them, we wash them, we give them to customers, we test them, and we make sure that they stand up to you know what we would expect out of a Matuk towel. Okay. Okay. I I got to become familiar with Matuk towels as a former Waterworks employee. So there were any time that there was an employee sale, I made sure to to stock up on Waterworks was Matuk an early towels. was an early believer yeah. in Matuk and a great partner for us and. You know, I admire Barbara Salick and her husband, Robert Salick, Robert Salick yeah. who started that company with this real product-driven ethos that is the origin of a lot of luxury companies, I think. And, you know, and Peter Salick, who uh, runs the business now, is a really intelligent and, you know, I would say, you know, uh, modern um, thinker who understood where the world was going in digital and other ways mm-hmm. before a lot of other companies did. So they, they've been a real role model for us. Well, that, it, it's interesting that the timing is very similar too when Waterworks chose to start carrying towels and some soft goods mm-hmm. in, in addition to the plumbing and, and tile. It was, a, it was a great time for, for you, it sounds like, because you were just getting into all of this business yourself. Right? Yeah, the timing, the timing was great for us. And, uh, and, you know, Waterworks has a challenge that a lot of home furnishings companies have that are focused on, you know, permanently installed uh, things in people's mm. houses, which is when you get into a construction project, it's great. But then how do you stay in touch with that customer on an ongoing basis after that. You know, they're not buying another vanity or bathtub every yeah. year, but they're, <laughs> they love waterworks. And so, you know, accessorizing with towels and other bathroom accessories like they did, uh, you know, made a lot of sense. And I think is what a lot of companies have tried to do as well. Well, and I think it was, it was interesting that it was a, a way to 
led a lot of people who couldn't necessarily afford at the time to buy Waterworks fixtures and fittings, but but own the brand in a, in another way through the soft goods and, yeah. and such. And and you've done something similar. I mean, so you you've made Matuk available at different price points through through different partnerships, whether it's One King's Lane or, or, or some other partnerships that you have? Yeah, I mean, we don't think about it as a price-driven thing necessarily, although obviously, you know, that's part of it. The, the way that we look at the, at the bedroom or at the home is that uh, the primary uh, place where the brand association is formed is in the master suite. And, um, and that's where the decision maker is living, and that's where the most compelling emotional material is, and, uh, and that's where we can sell you know, the best product that we can possibly make. But the great thing about the home and the bedroom and bathroom spaces are that same customer has a guest room or children's rooms or other rooms or a second house or maybe even a third. That, uh, that need product mm -hmm. and you know that customer feels differently uh, or wants to feel different in his or her bedroom when they're in their year-round house or when they go out to the beach for the summer and so we try to imagine all of the different ways that that customer wants to use our product in different environments throughout the house and so um, yeah, some of those would be price-oriented because even the most affluent customer is going to spend less in you know their five-year-old daughter's room than in their master bedroom. But uh, it's the same quality, it's the mm -hmm. same fabrics that we use all the way across, and um, and you know we don't think of it as as cheapening the product at all. No. We think about we think of it as going where um, everywhere where our customer wants to live with the product. And so, who do you think of as your customers today? I mean, so you've got all these distribution channels today. When you, when you think about building things, making things for your customer, who, who is that customer? I think our best customers are customers that love the home and they have a passion for home design and, uh, and they want to live in a meaningful way with products they really care about and feel connected to and and you know ultimately the the home especially the bedroom and the bathroom are deeply personal spaces mm -hmm. they're very intimate for any number of reasons and and homemakers don't only buy the product for themselves they buy the product for people that they love and care about whether they're family members who live there or guests who are coming and uh, you know that's that's how we think about our customers as someone who's not just in a economic demographic, but but lives a certain way and cares about certain things in the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you made the transition in, so we talked about the late 1990s, we talked about the early 2000s becoming the, the, the era of, uh, of towels and getting into the bathroom for you. What were the, so, and you were starting to see good results from all of this, it sounds like, right? So the mm -hmm. product was doing well. Yes, yes. You've, you've been self-funded yes, throughout That's right, this, that's right. right. Always self-funded and we're still... Still that held way. company. Still privately 100%. held company. Yep. You and you and your wife Mindy, right? Or yes, all, yes. All Mindy and I own most of the company. My sister and my father, as well. Okay. So that it's completely family owned. Completely family owned. Mm -hmm. And was that was that ever a challenge for, for you along the way? Was, was it a challenge in the late 1990s? Was it a challenge when you were trying to meet these big orders for Neiman Marcus, which you sort of alluded 
too. You know, they were they were patient with you. But I mean, what it is? Well, the biggest, honestly, the biggest challenge was around the financial crisis when because okay. uh, we're you know relying on banks to finance the growth of the business. And um, suddenly all of the banks were getting quite nervous about their portfolios. And, uh, and we were a textile manufacturing company. And, <laughs> so if anyone was going to have a problem, they right, would think it would be you. Right. What, what commercial loan officer is going to get a promotion going to his boss and saying like, hey, I want to loan a million bucks to a textile yeah. manufacturing company in Massachusetts. It's not really you know, a great sell. So, so what we have to do and had to do was to convince people that that's not exactly what we were, that we were actually a luxury products brand, that we right. were a force in the home furnishings industry. Yes, we are a textile manufacturing company as well, but that's not the essence of who we are. And, okay. and, and the truth is, over time, we diversified our supply chain significantly. We were already talked about making towels uh, in Portugal. We do a lot of manufacturing in the Philippines, where mm -hmm. we do a lot of the, like really highly crafted applique work. And so it wasn't just a made in the USA only story. It was right. a more sophisticated supply system that we felt like was delivering the best product in the market to the U.S. customer. And and once we got to tell that story, then. Um, the right banks were interested in helping us out again. Okay, okay. So, you, so you were able to, to ride out the financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. We wrote out we wrote out the financial crisis. Obviously, we learned a lot of hard lessons. You know, no, none of us had ever been through anything like that. But, sure. Uh, you know, we'd been growing a lot until that point, and um, and yeah, I think that that was we made it through. It mm -hmm. was scary, mm -hmm. but like a lot of companies, we. Um, tightened our belts a bit, but okay. also I think critically positioned ourselves for the future and anticipated uh, a recovery would happen. So rather than waiting for the economy to get better and mm -hmm. then start to invest, we actually started to invest and prepare before the recovery came. And that slingshotted our growth after 2010, even with greater velocity than we had experienced before. So what were what were some of the things that you were investing in at the at the time that seemed like a big risk for you but but you were counting on on the recovery? Well, the the first thing we did at that time was in 2009. So this is the depth of the uh of the financial, financial crisis. crisis sure. Our roof gave out in Fall River. So as you can imagine, we had did not have a lot of expendable income to fix the roof and it was a pretty depressing thing it's a big project it's a big roof and um but an article came across my desk or an email or something like that about the obama uh green energy oh, okay. incentives and solar subsidies and, and yeah yeah and and as it turns out you know we said well as long as we have to replace the roof like why don't we look into this well, it turns out that the roof that we were replacing was the wrong roof for solar because uh, it has air conditioning units and it's pitched in the wrong directions. But we had a solar company come out and they looked at the roof of our warehouse and said, you know what, this is like a really, this is the perfect roof for solar. So go ahead and replace the other roof and do solar back here. And we decided to do it. And huh. it was a really, so this was in 2009. It was, at the time, it was the largest solar installation in all of southeastern Massachusetts. Wow. And... Um, it was a really invigorating experience because a lot of people inside the company were worried. They were 
depressed. There wasn't a lot that we could do to grow our market because customers weren't buying it. Sure. But this was an investment that we could make that really helped define who we wanted to be as a company, not just to ourselves, but to the outside world as well. And I think it was inspiring uh, to a lot of people who were looking for a good story mm -hmm. to see like, wow, this is like this old textile company. They're not only still in business, but they're actually you know, 40% powered from renewable energy. They're putting energy. solar panels on their roof. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, now yeah. solar panels are, are all over the place, as they should be. Uh, in those days, it was a little bit more novel. Sure. And I think that that was, like, one of the, the big investments that we made that helped us define who we are today. Well, and, and what a great message, I'm sure, to send to your employees at the time, who no doubt were feeling nervous, and, and I'm sure there had to be some belt tightening during that time, and I don't know if there were layoffs or what have you, but... Well, yeah, we had our share of, yeah, of layoffs, I mean, not, not huge, but, you know, we, we reduced hours, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we cooperated in furloughs, and we tried to preserve as many jobs as we could, and, um, and the, you know, the solar panels are real tangible symbol of our commitment to the future. You sure. know, you don't put solar yeah. panels up so you can get one year worth of energy, right? They last 25, yeah. 30 years. So, uh, so, and not just to the future, but also to a future that we could be proud of. Right. And, you know, that's another thread that kind of goes through the Matuk story of manufacturing was going from what was sort of an old-fashioned type of manufacturing environment, mm -hmm. not one that we necessarily could be proud of or put on the homepage of your website these sure. days. Sure, I've heard to, you talk about it. To uh, what we think of as actually, you know, a model for mm -hmm. what, what manufacturing should be like in the 21st century, especially for a textile company that where the perceptions, for whatever reason, are always so low. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard you talk about how uncomfortable you were with the original facility, and, and I know you don't like to use the term sweatshop, but it sort of felt that way a little bit to, to you at the time. Uh, what, what did you have to do to, to, to modernize a, a, a facility to, to really make it a, a good environment for, for the workers and, and, and for the business? Well, I mean, the first thing that you have to do is you have to prove that you belong in the manufacturing business to begin with, right? And that's not just like, I want to manufacture, but I can do it here and I can make money doing it mm -hmm. and there's a reason to really invest. So so you really do. It's not it's not just a folk song. Like, you need an economic model that justifies investing because it's not inexpensive You know, when you think about the size of a factory and the mechanical equipment that's needed to support it, the machines themselves the inventory and everything else to do it. So so you need a viable, profitable business model. But then on top of that, you need uh, the perspective to say that I, just because I'm a manufacturer, that doesn't give me the right to treat the employees like they're parts of a machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that the, like one of the most important things that I learned at business school, which I deliberately had to unlearn, <laughs> was that... Um, you know, all business practices were justified as long as they were made in the name of shareholder value. Oh, right. right? Okay. And uh, and and that's that was literally like what people talked about in business schools. Like it doesn't matter mm -hmm. that the jobs are going here or there. Blah blah blah. It's so and so at home who's you know has the AT and T shares and is couponing the dividend and blah blah blah. But. Uh, 
and I think a lot of business owners made unethical business decisions based on that kind of philosophy. So, you know, you need to put your employees first. You need to imagine, like, is this the kind of factory that you would want your sons and daughters right. working in? And if it's not, then what are you doing? Like, what, what, what are you really doing? Like, what message are you sending mm-hmm. to the world about your business and your product? And, and that's just something that uh, at Matoop we were not going to tolerate. You know, we, we have all different levels of skill in our manufacturing operation, but, but everyone works now, you know, in a really clean, organized I think it's beautiful mm-hmm. environment. Okay. And um, and some of those things are just commitment. They're not even money. It's painting the walls. It's keeping it clean. It's organizing the plant in a thoughtful, meaningful way. Um, all of those things are, are every everything that touches an employee's experience are things that, as business owners, as executives, we should pay attention to. And and you have demonstrated that to your point the business can still be profitable and run an american manufacturing facility at that level you've still got the margins yeah. in your product that that can yes. run a profitable business that yes way. i think so like if i think if, if there's anything that we're proud of at matuk it's the fact that not only have we proven that we can manufacture profitably in the u.s that we can invest be a technology leader worldwide and what mm-hmm. we do but that we also have shown that we can do that in a modern somewhat enlightened manufacturing okay. environment and and to whatever extent anyone else who's out there that comes to Matuk and sees it as influenced by that and makes decisions about their own manufacturing or otherwise facilities around what we've been able to do I think is uh, is a great role that we can play in society. That's fantastic. And do people come and, and visit your facilities? And, and do, you, do you sort of yes. educate them about what you've done and, yeah. and what they too could, yeah. could do? Yes. Yeah. We have a lot of visitors. We welcome people in. Okay. You know, even if you visit into Gotta the factory store or something, there's big windows and you can look into the manufacturing environment and see what it is. And I don't want to sound like we've got the whole world figured out. You know, there's a lot of things that Matu could do better than we're doing now for sure. But uh, but I, I do I do enjoy walking people through the plant and and seeing them open their eyes a little bit and appreciate that not only is their manufacturing still in the United States, but it's done in an, env- an environment that they could actually see themselves working in too. Right, and that's really fun. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that's very rewarding. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Looking to hire top talent? Business of Homes Job Board is the premier destination for design industry professionals, including the ones you want to hire. Post a listing today at businessofhome.com jobs. And now, on with the show. I know at one point to sort of improve the efficiencies and perhaps find some additional cost savings and, and bring more structure to the business, uh, you, you partnered with, with Salesforce uh, and, and have found some, some great success with, with that. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, I don't think that um, Mark Benioff at Salesforce is 
thinking about his Matuk partnership every he, day necessarily. He takes every sale but, very seriously. But I, but I he, love Mark Benioff. I think he's a great business leader. He's, and, um, and he's got a, you on his website. That's, I another, mean, that's another story. Mm. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, we, we use Salesforce, I think, in unique and innovative ways. And, uh, and, and the truth is that, I don't want to sound pretentious about it, but we think of Matuk as a technology company. Uh, we're not selling technology, right. but but we're powering our strategies forward with the innovative use of technologies, um, both from an wow. internal point of view, how we manage our production, how we forecast our inventory, how we set um, you know performance goals uh, for for success and order fulfillment, quality, and things like that to how we use technology to communicate with our business-to-business partners Mm -hmm. and support their businesses, to how we use technology as well to communicate directly with consumers and, you know, through our e-commerce shop and social media and other ways. So, so technology, the use of technology is, is, is fundamental to almost everything we do now. And we feel like to reach our goals and to be competitive, we can't just be consumers of technology ourselves, but we have to be innovative thinkers about technology at the same time. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's interesting, and that's often one of the biggest challenges that legacy companies have, right? Yeah. Is, is bringing, not only bringing in technology, but really embracing technology and making it part of, of the entire business. And it sounds yes. like that's been a priority for you. Yeah, it, it has been a priority for us. It's, sometimes it's difficult. The Matuk, I, I think of us as a, old company that's also a young company uh, I don't again like I, I don't want to sound pretentious and say like we're a startup or something but we're a change oriented kind of business mm-hmm. and uh, and so we've had people who have had trouble with that because mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's hard to adopt new technologies I mean sure. just the idea of cloud-based technologies compared to what people were using 10 or 15 years ago is like it's almost unthinkable uh, you know, we can. I could schedule production in the Matuk factory from the Acela on the way down here from from Providence, Rhode Island, this morning. I mean, it's really amazing what we're able to do now. And um, you know, it's it's important to have change oriented people and leadership positions in the company as mm-hmm. well, because uh, some of these things can be really difficult to adapt. For people who aren't ready to do that, so right. you know, we we we've had growing pains around this, okay. just like a lot of other companies have. I, I, I'm I'm sure, but but it sounds like it it really dramatically changed your 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 manufacturing process and efficiencies and, uh, and yeah, we, we put in a new MRP, you know, manufacturing resource planning mm-hmm. system uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, the the the. The results have been kind of staggering in what we've been able to do. Okay. And uh, just manufacturing lead times in our facility in Massachusetts have been reduced from four to five weeks, if that, to around eight to ten working days. Hmm. Our, uh, we're able to measure on-time performance in ways that we could never have imagined doing before. Uh, we we launched a quick ship monogram program this year where we promised uh, delivery of of any product in the Matuk product line monogrammed 
in less than two weeks, and uh, whereas before it was a four to six week lead right. time. Okay. Just that's, strictly that's through big. the technology and the information we have, the data that we can manage and track, and we have something like a 99.5% on-time delivery rate. It, it's just, it's it's really been rewarding yeah. and, and amazing, and I think instructive uh, to see how, you know, a company like Matuk in the home furnishings industry can can use data in meaningful ways like we read about much larger enterprises doing sure sure and and to give people an idea of the of the scale of of matuk can you can you share with us sort of what, what revenues because i know revenues have yeah. grown dramatically for yeah, you in sure. recent years and it's, you know we're forecasting 35 million in revenue this year um that's you know, from the beginning of the story, like the turnaround story in yeah. the late 90s, that's about 10, 11 fold 10, revenue, 11 fold. In, revenue increase from what we were then. We had 30 employees in Massachusetts then. Now we've got 130. We have 10 full time here in New York. And, uh, and you know, I'm proud to say that we support the employment of uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people in other parts of the world mm -hmm. through the Matuk supply chain. So, you know, it's part of what I feel is our role as an American company. Uh, the way that we look at being an American company is, is not just our commitment to what we do here in the United States, but our commitment to hopefully be a force for good everywhere that we work. Right. Uh, so, which which leads me, unfortunately, to think about uh, America first uh, as a a policy here in the United States right now. And I do want to touch on what I'm sure must be some challenges for you right now in the in the current political and economic environment. Whether it's the issue of tariffs, whether it's just how America is sort of being positioned in the world in in general. Well, you know, there's lots of different facets to this conversation. Uh, you know, certainly the immigration crisis is a, a major economic problem from my point of view for the United States. The the country is dependent in all different industries on the on the best and the brightest from around the world coming to the United States. And, uh, and the, I think that this is a real threat to this core of the American identity that, uh, you know, the people around the world don't, are not going to want to come to the United States because of the, the way that immigrants are stigmatized mm -hmm. and treated here. And so, you know, as a, there's, we're part of the Massachusetts Business Coali Coalition for Immigration Policy. We're a founding member of that group uh, trying to lobby for sensible immigration reform. Um, to you know, to protect not only our history of immigration, but also uh, the 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 businesses and the economies that we have that are dependent mm -hmm. on immigration. So there's that aspect of the world right now that's troubling. The trade war, it it, it I don't understand it yeah. really. You know, from a business person's point of view, um, you know, you might be surprised to know that the U.S. government is doing things to disincentivize manufacturing itself through our own tariff and duty system. So to give you an example, when when we buy printed sheeting in Italy, we pay a 12% duty rate to bring it into the United States. That's sheeting that we produce in Italy to bring here to manufacture and create jobs in the United States. Right. If we bought a printed sheet in a package never touched by anyone in the United States, we would pay an 8% duty rate for that item. So the fact that we're creating, 
you know, weird trade wars mm -hmm. and instability mm -hmm. in the world to protect manufacturers when the existing U.S. system already is broken and is, and this isn't a Trump thing, this goes back to Obama and Clinton, Bush, everybody before. It's like, it's, it doesn't make sense to me either. You know, there's lots of intelligent ways to promote manufacturing in the United States, which I think is a good thing, not for selfish reasons, but because we should be a country that can make things right. um, without doing it through a trade war. So I mm -hmm. find all of that instability, uh, you know, the picking and choosing of industries that are going to be advantaged or disadvantaged uh, to be nonsensical okay. and complicated from a business point of view. So, you know, I probably sound political, you know, so be it. But I, no, no. the, the I environment, mean... you know, could be... I don't think that if, if the government was really going to work to uh, to, to uh, support the growth of American manufacturing and other industries that, that this is the best way to do it. Well, General Motors is, is certainly learning today uh, the, the challenges of announcing that you're changing some of your manufacturing or, uh, or, or moving some things around. Um, but when you think about the challenges that do exist for you in the landscape today. So, we, so we, we obviously we touched on the on the political, but I'm assuming that a much bigger challenge for you is all of these direct-to-consumer brands that are coming along, all of these sort of digitally native brands that have come along. Is that something that you pay a lot of attention to, or how do you sort of think about positioning Matuk relative to to some of those companies? Well. I wouldn't say that that's a threat for Matuk. Um, I, I could talk about what I think the biggest threats for Matuk are in the future, but but I think that the the subject of the direct to consumer companies comes up a lot, and uh, and I think that there's a big misperception in a way, um, because you can't paint all direct to consumer companies with a single brush. In fact, Matuk is a direct-to-consumer company. We're a direct-to-consumer company and a business-to-business -business right. company. And we're also a business-to-different-kind-of-business company. We have multiple customer segments that we're selling into uh, national accounts like Bloomingdale's, interior designers, independent retail stores, hotels, etc. So, so the world is a complicated one. Sure. And I think that... Um, you know, to sort of pit the direct-to-consumer companies against the legacy companies like ours is, is, is probably an oversimplification that's been created by, you know, sloppy journalism at places like Fast Company or whatever, mm. where all you have to do is, you know, tell a story about going to a party and starting a towel company, and then all of a sudden... Fast Company writes an article about you being the Warby Parker of towels. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, like, I find to be a little bit ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I, the thing about cutting out the middleman makes right. me laugh. Like, I want to stand up for the middleman everywhere <laughs> here. I'm doing that right now. Um, but, you know, if you are a quote-unquote middleman, uh, you have to add value. You have to have a reason for being sure. and what you do. And, uh, and we don't consider ourselves to be a middleman, Matuk. We're manufacturers. We'd also do some importing. But, like, we're creating extraordinary value for retailers uh, by doing what we do. And those retailers are delivering products to consumers that consumers want to buy. And so, yeah, we've learned a lot from the direct-to-consumer companies. I mean, I think they've shown us really interesting ways 
that uh, you can build a brand, for example, that you can uh, take advantage of digital spaces. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of them I like a lot and other ones I think are less interesting and robust. And I, I would draw a contrast with that and, you know, the direct-to-consumer companies that only compete on price. Right. And, like, and, like you could name them you yourself. Could, okay. You could listen to satellite radio right. okay. and you'll hear the yeah. advertisements. Right. And they'll tell you what the promo code mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And um and and you know, listen, if if they're doing great for themselves, yeah. like that's awesome. I wish them the best. But right. that's why I don't think of them as threats. Like they're not luxury right. companies. Like right. luxury companies don't compete on price like that. In fact, right. There's no promo code box anywhere on the Matuk website. Like right. we've never sold a product on Matuk.com on sale ever, and we won't. And we're proud of that uh, because a lot of people have said forever that in home furnishings you can't sell at full price, and we just don't think that that's the case. We think that if you deliver a product that has real value, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from a brand that you can trust and you you protect it, um, then you don't need promo codes to drive customer acquisition and other uh, metrics and you know we're lucky we don't have venture capital companies that are looking for the next round Breeding of financing down your neck that's right we can right. make decisions for the long term and and we do so um so and yeah you know it's, it's 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 very it's a really interesting space and i have to yeah. say that that there's that that we've learned a lot from some of the the better direct to consumer companies and you know maybe they've learned from us too Hopefully they have, uh, and and I think that your, your your point about sort of learning from a marketing perspective, what what a lot of these companies did it, did a very good job of how they rolled themselves out, how they positioned themselves, and and what they're able to do with online marketing. That's impressive, as you say. At the end of the day, do they have a profitable business model? Which is also a question for Wayfair. Speaking of, of course, I mean, absolutely. You know, yeah, the jury is still out after sixteen years as to whether that company is going to yeah. be profitable and I think it's really interesting I mean the whole the whole um, quote-unquote cut out the middleman model mm. was built around not having to have a retail margin yet um, now a lot of these original you know cut out the middleman companies are opening their own opening retail, retail stores. stores yet they can't sell anything online without a promotional code so, you know, I think that's a tough situation to be in. You know, I think if you're in a price, if you've got a price-driven business model, mm -hmm. good luck, because eventually you're competing against Amazon. Right. And, uh, and I think that part of what companies like Matuk are, are trying to do is, um, no disrespect to Amazon, but, you know, to, to own the channels where we can be profitable. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that is protecting the value of what we sell. Well, it, 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 it's interesting that you mentioned the, the many different kinds of distribution that you have, right? So you're right. selling to stores like E. Braun here in New York, right? And at the, right? And yeah, at, yeah. And at the same time, as we mentioned, you're selling to interior designers, you're, you're available through One King's Lane. So you've got all of these different channels and you've, and you've got some direct-to-consumer or D2C, as everyone likes to call it today, right? Mm -hmm. So is, is D2C, is that a big part of your business? What's, what's the biggest part of your business? Well, the, the biggest part of our business is our partnership with Bloomingdale's. Okay. Uh, and Bloomingdale's been an amazing partner for Matuk. Uh, in fact, we sold our first towel to Bloomingdale's in 2010. So, you know, having built the... And, and I was always told, like, oh, boy, you know, be careful. Or there was always this idea 
about working with Bloomingdale's. I just want to say the opposite. Like my experience with Bloomingdale's <laughs> been amazing, and okay. they're a great partner for Matuk. And it's because they care about home furnishings. They put the stuff on the floor. You know, they're the the home furnishings department on 59th Street is the best of any department store in the country. And and that's why their home furnishings business is good and why they can sell better product. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the biggest part of our business. After that, um, independent retail stores and interior designers and mm-hmm. then our direct-to-consumer e-commerce and our hotel business would come after that. Uh, they're growing at different rates, let's say. They're all important. Uh, you're, you know, speaking about channel conflict, which is something that uh, we deal with all the time. There's certainly retailers that we have that wish we didn't sell directly or wish we didn't sell to interior designers, and sure. et cetera, okay. et cetera. So, um, you know, what we try to do in this world is put the consumer first and make sure that the consumers that want to buy Matuk product can do that in the place where they want to do it. Mm. And um, and to the extent that along the way that we can provide meaningful value to the retailers that we sell to and the interior designers, everybody wins. Right. But it's not easy to pick and choose in a rapidly changing environment because where the consumer's going right now might not be the same place where they're going in a couple of years. One thing I can say is that we've been able to use our manufacturing system to mitigate that because we can do customized product for different channels so that, that there are places like One Kings Lane that are selling product that's not available anywhere else. Right. Um, so that they can truly say that they you know, have an exclusive product and don't have to worry about someone else pricing it differently or selling it somewhere else. So you know, having control of your supply chain um, is really critical in being able to service multiple customer segments effectively. And, and that's really what it sounds like you think is, is allowing you to be, to be nimble and agile and, and, and sort of roll with these changes as they're, as they're coming along at, at a much more rapid pace, right, than they, than they were years uh, ago. Yeah, right? I, mean, I mean, it's incredible how fast everything is changing. I mean, yeah. you know, hardly any of our top 10 customers were Matu customers and 10 years ago, like maybe one, Neiman Marcus, and that, that would be it. So, uh, so things are changing rapidly. Certainly, you want to have the assets to deploy, to respond to a changing market, and you definitely need the perspective. You know, you need that um, ability to, to think and rethink and clear your head and um, and change and 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 let go of some paradigms that you think are the rules of the industry because as as you know as well as anyone uh, what is true today is not going to be true two or three years from now and what it's it, it, it's so interesting that you say that and then uh, Bloomingdale's a, a department store is your, is your top customer right yeah. now and and that's fascinating and and would be sort of a, an unexpected or counterintuitive answer at a time where everybody's distribution has changed so much and where where retailers particularly department stores have gotten such a bad rap and and they don't have the right model but but right. to Macy's and Bloomingdale's credit they've gone to great lengths to overhaul their own operations and, and focus on the things that they're really good at, like home furnishings. And, exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, I can't comment on the overall financial condition of Bloomingdale's as a store. 
But if you look at what they're doing in home furnishings, it's there's a reason why they're successful. Yeah. Is because they're committed to doing something that nobody else is doing. And and they have been now, you know, in a meaningful way at a luxury level for about ten years. And it's paying dividends mm-hmm. because people want to go and touch and feel and experience this product. And um, and they can do that at some place like Bloomingdale's, and they can't do that at Saks or Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom. And so it's true that uh, more and more commerce every day is going digital. Right. But it's also true that uh, in touch and feel type of categories with customers who really want to learn not just about one brand, but about multiple brands and find their favorites. Uh, Bloomingdale's the only place at the luxury level where you can go and do this in multiple home furnishings categories. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it's it's you think of department stores as being old. I think it's Bloom, of Bloomingdale's approach in this way as being modern and committed. And and as you say, it, it's it's a touch and feel kind of product, and it's hard to believe that it won't won't always be, despite the the growth in in digital. You mentioned earlier that all of these direct-to-consumer, that, that's not really the threat that you're worried about. Yeah. So, yeah, there are other things that you're much more concerned about. So what are some of the things you're more concerned about? Well, the biggest concern that I have, honestly, is, um, is the environment and the planet and, uh, mm, okay. and, and how, how the global supply system for mm-hmm. cotton and fabrics is is going to be affected um, by climate change over time. I mean, I think I think the other threats that we're talking about, whether it's like a really good competitor or you know a new technology or you know that those are all threats that we can deal with, right? The the threats that are outside of our control are ones that cause me more um, distress, and I think that all of us should be thinking more about and um and i'm not going to pretend that i'm far along this journey and i have a lot of really compelling things to say about it Mm -hmm. um you know as a company we've talked already about being committed to utilizing green energy uh we also expect and have had success in working with suppliers overseas who share the same values but um you know what happens if in spite of all of those efforts, there are major agricultural disruptions in the cotton industry. You know, 98% of what we sell is made out of cotton. Sure. These are, those are the kind of threats that I think should keep all of us up at night. And they're, and they're coming soon. But, but luckily, again, the administration is all over it. <laughs> they, they are addressing those concerns and they, they have an eye to the future. But I'm eager to have you just sort of sum up what what you've learned that 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 legacy companies can do because when i think of the when i think of the fabric industry for example and a, a business not dissimilar to your own in in many ways right now that industry is is trying to figure out how to how to get to the future right mm-hmm. and and the mm-hmm. distribution channels are are challenging for them online and mm-hmm. e-commerce doesn't seem to be a solution for them mm-hmm. I, what what do you think what's the, what's the advice you you give well i i think that the rules for success for all companies and all segments of the home furnishings industry are probably a little bit different and i don't i don't know that exactly what we've learned at Matuk is is applicable 
you know, to other companies necessarily. But but I will say that um, that that accepting that the world is rapidly changing, and accepting that the major change from a commercial point of view is the fact that the consumer has all of the power right now, is the place where you start. And and you can't you can't pretend that the good old days are are coming back. They're they're just not. You know the technology that's been put at the consumer's fingertips is only accelerating. Mm-hmm. And so rather than than bemoaning the situation and how difficult it is and giving up. Uh, I think that the real exciting part of the world we live in right now is getting to know your customer better and making sure you're in that right place. And then working closely across distribution channels to help your valued partners understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. And I can, I've lived the same movie as uh, all of the other companies in the industry. You know, the, there's a lot of channel conflict and and it seems like every decision that you make is offending someone that you really like. And overall, I think you just have to look at the big, big picture and say that I'm going to do everything I can to support my partners. But if I do so at the expense of the consumer, who ultimately is either going to buy Matuk when they want sheets or go to a competitor if they can't find Matuk, mm-hmm that you know we're going to have to we're going to have to live in this world that allows us to do that and um and and if you stay that course i think it's actually good for everyone i'm i can honestly tell you and i'm not bragging it's just relevant that every single one of those categories that we sell into is growing by double digits this year and uh and so i think that the moral of the story is that you know it might be bumpy but if the consumer wants your product and respects your brand, then you can support multiple distribu- distribution channels in making sure that, that you're in the right place at the right time. Okay, okay. Now, you're a very young man, obviously. Obviously, thank so, you for yes, saying so. Handsome as well. And well, um, so, obviously, you're not thinking too much about the future and succession, but you've got three daughters, yes? Yes. And and have any of them expressed interest in coming to the to the family business? Do yes. any of them get involved? Yes. Unlike okay. me, who couldn't Unlike stay you. far enough away. <laughs> uh, I, Mindy and I have never traumatized our daughters with satin sheets the way that I was. And, uh, and they are young. They're 11 and 13 and 14 years old. And um, they have grown up around the business mm-hmm. and they like the factory and they like the product and they all have their favorite towels. And, you know, that's, that's kind great. of part of our family culture, you know. And if that family culture translates into any one of them being interested in, working at Matuk as a career, that would be great. And if they want to do other stuff, that would be great too. But we look at our obligation as, as continuing the Matuk legacy, if you will, or at least making it available to the fourth generation like it was available to me. And, um, and so, you know, we have a long time horizon. And, okay. it, and, it's, and it's healthy for the business because we can make decisions that, you know, can pay back over a long period of time. 
but you'd love nothing more than for the kids to to one day get involved right i mean if nothing that's, would make if you that's their destiny and that's what that's they want to do more do. than anything else in the world then i will right. not stop them well, you, as you pointed out earlier, usually it is the third generation that screws up the business. So okay, well, hopefully you have can... kept it together very well. Thank and you. Yes. Hoping not to jinx it through no, this podcast. No, no, no. Uh, I think it's very encouraging. You, you mentioned, as we wrap up, you mentioned the environment's one of your big concerns. What, what, what's one of your big focuses as far as whether it's the growth of the business, whether it's, it's changes that you're continuing to make to the business? Like, what are you working on right now with regards to the business that you're eager to, to, to see to fruition? Well, um, that's, a great, that's a great question. You know, as a, uh, the leader of Matuk, my job has changed a lot over the years from a, running a smaller company that did one thing to running a somewhat larger company that's doing multiple things. And, um, and, and I think that the, what I'm really focused on right now is continuing to build the leadership team that's going to get us from where we are now to where we want to be five years from now. And in some of those pieces of the puzzle are in place and there's other uh, big um, searches that are underway for new members of the Matuk team and, and also thinking about how we're configured as an organization, you know, for success for the future. And so, and that includes me, you know, making sure that I have the tools that are, that I need to be able to make good decisions for an organization at this scale, like hopefully I was able to do when it was at a different scale. Mm. So I think that as, you know, as a, I always wondered when I was younger and the business was smaller, well, like, what if we got to $35 million? Like, how would we grow by 10%? You know, back 20 years ago, that would have been like doubling the company in one year. Yeah. And, and what I've learned over time is it's not a secret. You know, the way to, to do that is to hire amazing people who, you know, are, are intelligent and driven and who feel vested in the success of the company and motivated by the product and motivated by the culture that we're building at Matuk. And, and right now, that's the most exciting thing that I'm working on. And, you know, in a way, I want the company to not need me anymore and to be, you know, an amazing, successful company, no matter who the CEO would be. That's, that's my goal for the year. Okay, well that that's a great that's a great goal. Uh, Barbara Salek, who we mentioned earlier from Waterworks, always used to say to me, Dennis, hire people that are smarter than than you. And I, I, I'm assuming that's difficult for you, but is that what you try and <laughs> it's try not? And do it's well? not difficult for me. It's hard for me to hire someone who talks less about Matuk than I do. <laughs> that I yeah. definitely like wear the crown for sure. But Got smarter, it. more wow. experienced. No problem. Better taste, definitely. Well, you, you, you carry the brand well, and you're obviously very proud, and, and you obviously have a great deal to be, to be proud of. Thanks, so, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate no, you I, saying all that. I've, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. Me too. My guest has been George Matuk, CEO and third-generation owner of Matuk. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.